Today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so turn with me to that Bible. But then at the end, we leave time for a question that's in the news. And if you have noticed this week, the uh, Texas legislature, first the Senate and then the House, passed a bill that would prevent so-called trans athletes from participating. In other words, you are to actually participate in your gender. So I thought we might talk about that a little bit. Uh, this last week, uh, for the first year students, I taught an entire week on creationism, which went very well. But for the second year students, over the years, they've asked me to do a couple of uh, presentations on homosexuality. But as time has gone on, uh, the transgenderism has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So I actually had one whole talk on that. So I'm going to share just a little bit about that today because that's an important issue. Some of you came to one of the probe events we did a while back on the return of the God hypothesis. On November 18th, uh, Sue Bolin is going to be talking about clarity in the area of gender confusion. So I might mention that one is coming up in the future. And so I really want to try to help you understand kind of your biblical convictions about these issues, but also your biblical compassion. So I'm going to share a few things that might be helpful as you find yourself having a conversation, which is certainly going to surface if indeed this is signed by the governor. There's no reason that it shouldn't be. Um, and so as a result, what of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, uh, family members are saying about that. Some of you have children and grandchildren. What do I say when they ask questions about that? So I'm just going to give you a few things to think about in that regard. But first, we're going to spend some time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. And uh, we will look, first of all, at the first eight verses because it gives us an understanding of what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to the believers there in Thessalonica. Verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you are to do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Quite a number of things to unpack there, so let me see if we can deal with that. First of all, the theory, and you can see this in your handout, is to address this issue of sexual immorality. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But this is where now Paul begins his discussion of some of these urgent issues. For the last many weeks we've been together, those three chapters were really where he is thanking them for their faithfulness. And it's called uh, what is called a paranetic. If you want to have a great new word for today, that's your new word for today. This is a part of the letter that now gets into, if you will, the meat, the moral and ethical teaching. Basically, how you ought to walk and how you ought to live in a life pleasing to God. So that's really the first thing that we see. Then in Paul's letters, we see also that typically after we have some of this doctrinal teaching, then we now have the application. So now he's starting to give application. And here, 
in some respects, he's not really wagging his finger at them. He's just encouraging them to follow what they already were doing. He's reminding them of what they've already been taught and also, if you will, encouraging them to keep doing what they've already been doing. So in some respects, this particular uh, letter uh, is full much more of not necessarily correction as it is basically encouragement. Just as today, if um, the Apostle Paul were to write to us here at Prestonwood, uh, there may be some areas of correction, but a lot of it would just simply say, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, that is the case. And then he uses this phrase, more and more. Now, I was reading some of the commentaries. I always wondered about more and more. Well, more and more is probably best translated sanctification. Um, I hate to use big words, but after all, Pastor Graham, we've been in uh, Romans 8 for a while. We've heard sanctification a few times, right? So sanctification is the case. Um, I saw some great uh, um, memes that were out this week on sanctification. But uh, it, again, is a reminder that once you're saved, that's justification. Then as you become uh, more and more like Christ, that's your sanctification. So this phrase more and more really could be just as easily translated sanctification. Sanctification is not, a, as I put on the screen here, a one-time event. That would be justification. It's a lifelong process. As, as we grow in grace and we walk with the Lord, we become more Christ-like. And that, as he said, is the will of God for our lives as Christians. No matter what he calls for us to do, we're still to grow in grace and grow in likeness to him. He's called us to do many things, obviously to be his disciples also to be his witnesses to a non-Christian world. And his will for us may not necessarily be about career and mission, it's about character. It's not about our actions, it's about our identity. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to take that as a good illustration, because we have some people that say, I have a different gender identity, but if you're a Christian, your identity is what? Your identity is in Christ. Does that make sense? So let's move on, because now the process of sanctification is the process of being changed by the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, a couple of us were talking about how Pastor Graham over the last couple of weeks has really focused a lot of time and attention, as we've been in Romans 8, on the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot here in Baptist churches. They talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot in charismatic churches. But, you know, we need to come back and recognize that is the third part of the Trinity. And so that is the case. And as I put here, these are not just rules to follow our descriptions of, of that. But the idea of sexual purity is almost the first issue that the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about what is happening in Thessalonica. The word sexual immorality is the Greek word. It's the only Greek word I think I'll give you today. Pornea, from which we get the word what? Pornograph, or pornographic, or something of that nature, pornography. And so again, it is broader than just prostitution. There have been some who have tried to say, well, when Paul talks about pornea, he's talking about some kind of temple prostitution, but he's really not talking about sexual immorality. Yes, he is, and I have a whole chapter in one of my books, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, where we go into that in more detail. So why in that is it the first thing that the Apostle Paul talks about? He could have picked anything to start doing the teaching on it. And part of it was, again, not that he's giving them a rebuke, but he is giving them a warning. And if you go back and look at the history of what it was like in a port town like Thessalonica, or what it was like to be a port town like 
uh, Corinth, you recognize that there was a level of sexual immorality that uh, might even make uh, some of the people down at Harry Hines blush a little bit because it is just rampant. And it was very common, as I put on the screen here, in this Gentile world, especially in Thessalonica, for men to have a wife to bear their legitimate heirs, which was different from a mistress for sexual and intellectual companionship, as well as maybe having slaves and concubines and even prostitutes. And so we are talking about a level of sexual uh, degrading and sexual debauchery and depravity, to use three different D words, uh, that is something far beyond something we would have imagined other than, of course, some of you have been in the Navy. You know what it was like in a port town, right? Well, that's exactly what's going on here in Thessalonica. That's what's going on in Corinth. And so that's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, before he even gets to any other issue, starts with that issue. Given the fact that a little bit later we're going to be talking about this whole idea of sexual redefinition and those kinds of things, it illustrates again maybe how this particular epistle of Paul applies not only to the first century, but it seems to apply a great deal to what? The 21st century as well. And so again, this is the idea. Notice how he describes it in verse 5. Here it says that the Gentile sexual ethic is what? A passion of lust. If you feel these passions, you should act upon them. Because what? They do not know God. Um, and that is kind of the non-Christian world. I have these feelings. I need to act on these feelings. For Christians, we say we have temptation, but we have a will especially the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to prevent us from falling into sin. you see the difference? And so that is the case. And so if you're looking for a cross-reference, I know some of you like to take some notes, put down Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24, because here, Paul, writing even to the church in Ephesus, which uh, probably had a little less of the problem, to be honest, with that of Thessalonica, still, he gives us kind of a long list. Sensuality, greed, impurity, deceitful desires. And so you are seeing all through the writings of Paul to address this Greco-Roman world to apply a biblical view, a Christian view of sexuality rather than the Gentile pagan view. One more I might put up there, 1 Corinthians 6. It talks about our bodies as believers belong to God to be used for what? His purposes, not for self-indulgence. And sexual sins, as we can see in many of the writings of the Apostle Paul, not only wrong other individuals, ultimately they wrong God. And that brings you to verse 6, which talks about the fact that God will avenge it. And so those are the first couple of passages that we see here. But now we pick up some more in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so we now see another section here, which again talks about the Holy Spirit. Amazing how many times in these last couple of weeks, whether it's Pastor Graham or now even in First Thessalonians, we're talking about that. But he, first of all, commends them for having this brotherly love for one another. And he encourages them to do that more and more, to grow in sanctification and about pleasing that. And so just as he opened the letter with thanksgiving for their faith and hope, and as an example, talked about how their faith 
was an encouragement to the rest of that region, Macedonia and Achaia, all the way up that Greek and Roman area there that uh, we today refer to as Greece or all the way up to parts even northern of Greece, that word of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians continued on. Then he goes on to talk a little bit more about the fact that uh, these individuals didn't need to be told to have brotherly love because God apparently told them. Remember, again, they have three weeks they were together, three Sabbaths. That's it. So a lot of the teaching came initially from Paul, but the rest pretty much came simply by being dependent upon the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. And I think if you're looking for some other verses that fit very well, John 13 reminds us that the disciples, actually, if they are demonstrating love for one another, actually demonstrate this kind of supernatural love to the watching world as well. And so I make the distinction here between brotherly love, oftentimes called phileo. I guess I promised I wasn't going to do any Greek words, but okay. Uh, phileo versus the agape love. And this agape love comes only from God because that will allow us to love uh, individuals as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you think about that, any human being really has the ability to love on a human level. It's not hard to love people that love you. Jesus talked about that. But the real challenge is to love people that are unlovable. To love, for example, as I point out there, to actually love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Uh, to love uh, so much that you're willing to forgive individuals again and again. And even to be willing to lay down your life for others. So again, the world's view of love is pretty simple, pretty truncated, pretty... Uh, if you will, almost anemic. But the love that we have from God is something that really transcends what you see on the human level, what you see in the world. And I think that is going to be one of the best testimonies we're going to have in the future if indeed people are going to be attracted to Christianity. He also taught, of course, that this love comes only from God through the power of this new covenant. And again, some key verses. You know, it tells us that once we become a Christian... Once we trust in Christ, we become what? A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And that uh, also that our growing in Christ renews us day to day, day by day. And that we're even more sanctified, back to this verse in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that that's happening day after day, more and more. Not just a divine communication, but actually a divine relationship, or if nothing else, enabling us to love in a way that transcends what we see in the secular world around us. But let's finish off uh, 1 Thessalonians. And what we find here is starting in verse 11, he also talks about them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. And here he now addresses one other issue of work. It's interesting, the two things he picks up in this passage. Number one, sex. Number two, work. Now we see this in sort of an embryonic, implicit form in 1 Thessalonians. If you go right to 2 Thessalonians, you see he even makes it more explicit by saying those who what? will not work, will not eat. So, apparently, this was a problem. 
Now, in the ancient world, especially in the growing church, this was a communal event. You were the few believers being persecuted by the non-believers. So there wasn't kind of the individualistic Christianity that we have here in North America. You know, we're kind of, you know, just the, the solitary one. I'm just going to live out my Christianity, you know. And that is certainly one of the uh, difficulties that we have today because we all tend to see the gospel individualistically instead of within the body of Christ. But they lived in a very radical community. Remember, again, in Jerusalem, they're selling their property and putting it in a common store to minister to one another. So there was definitely this idea of a community. But again, if they were unable to provide for themselves, then the community would provide for them. That would be the widows, the orphans, and others that uh, maybe have had uh, various kinds of physical defects. But if a person was perfectly capable of working um, and didn't take advantage of the Christian community, that was not brotherly love. And so here, it seems like it was a warning. If you don't work and take care of your own affairs, you'll become a drain on the Christian community. And moreover, you'll be a bad witness to outsiders. Now, why did Paul bring that up? Well, most Bible scholars think that Timothy, when he was there and brings this report back to Paul, already started to see some of this. Now, think about this. Next week, if you're coming, we're going to get into prophecy. You know, and if you're starting to think that Jesus is going to return, there's a sense of which, well, I'll just sit here and just wait for him to return, right? So there is possibly the idea that if the Christ is going to return and this is all going to end, well, why do I need to do anything more? Why do I need to work? I'll just benefit from the community. After all, we've got such a great welfare program here in the church. Uh, as long as I just keep getting fed, I won't need to work. So for whatever reason, there seems to have been something that was starting to happen, an attitude that says, you know, I'm just going to sit back and wait for Christ's return, which I've noticed ever since, you know, we've had some of the emphasis on prophecy ever since back, it was 1969, when um, Hal Lindsey wrote the book, Late Great Planet Earth. You know, I had some people say, well, you know. Don't need to get insurance. Probably don't really need to get any kind of job because Christ's going to return very quickly. And that, that, of course, hasn't worked out so well because we're now in 2021, right? Uh, so you have seen that kind of mindset that has been a danger to that. So here, after, first of all, addressing the issue of sex, now he's addressing the issue of work. And he wrote, not only would uh, their laziness be a drain on the community, ultimately it would be a bad witness to outsiders. If they go back there and look at workers, if anything, Christians have oftentimes stood out in the culture as being very different. One, because they have a very different view of sexuality. And number two, because they have a very different view about work. The latest booklet I have coming out, I guess I need to put some on the pew uh, uh, here, is on work. And I start by talking about how Max Weber wrote a book years ago. Um, the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant work ethic. Because there was always sort of an emphasis upon the fact that Christians would be good workers. Even to this day, I've heard that sometimes in China, uh, the Chinese government, though they are fearful of Christians, also tacitly acknowledge that Christian 
Chinese. Chinese Christians oftentimes tend to be better workers and they tend to be more efficient and they tend to be more reliable. And so again, Paul is recognizing and if you want to have a testimony for the watching world, sex, love, work, these are all really important issues that illustrate to the world that indeed there is something different about Christianity. Here's one quote, a book that I highly recommend. Um, it's a Baylor professor. Got to say Baylor today, don't I? At least once. And that is uh, Professor Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And the book reminds us of how really uh, this so-called cult of Jesus eventually within three centuries just dominated the Roman Empire. And one of the quotes comes from one of the early uh, if you will, Christian fathers, and his name was Tertullian, and he wrote that the pagans used to say, see how they, that is Christians, love one another. There was something very striking about how Christians showed love for one another. They cared for one another. Uh, they would actually go out in the streets, and if a child had been abandoned, they would take them in. They would treat people that were sick. Uh, and during these plagues, instead of people being thrown out on the streets, the Christians, at the risk of their own lives, would go and show love to those individuals in the streets. And as a result, the outsiders began to say, I'm a pagan. I wouldn't do that. Then when the persecutions took place, I know I would not go into the Colosseum and die for my pagan God. And these people are willing to die because of this. There is something strikingly different about these Christians. And so, if anything, what they began to see is that a genuine Christian community where they genuinely love one another was so strikingly different from the world that it really caused them to say, see how these Christians Love one another. And that, I think, is the testimony here of the letter today to the Thessalonians, is that they are individuals who actually were to follow biblical principles about human sexuality, certainly follow biblical principles about work, and most importantly, be identified as those who love. It is so unusual and so appealing that it makes a lot of people say, you know, I would love to be loved by that. I would really like to be loved by that. And so again, I believe that may be, as it was true in the first century, a great opportunity for us here in the 21st century uh, to have evangelism begin to be significant simply because people will see Christians living differently than the world. So that's the end of this. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the coming of the Lord. You've been looking forward to the stuff on prophecy. We may camp out here for a while, but we'll get into some of that. And interestingly enough, one of the individuals I know has been having a debate with a friend of mine on whether or not the Bible even teaches the rapture. So there are some interesting kind of intramural debates right now in the Christian world. Sometimes I've been asked to referee those or um, actually try to provide a moderation for it. I'm going to watch the debate and see what's said, but if nothing else, I want to give you some equipment because you probably have a few people here that are saying, you Christians believe in the rapture? Really? Why? Well, first of all, I think it's described right here in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we'll get into next week. And second of all, let me give you some reasons for that. But with a few minutes I have remailing, let me, if I can, talk about this issue, transgenderism.
And I'm not going to get into all the aspects of this, but I just wanted to give you a few things that I've been sharing with second year students at my Bible Institute that would be helpful. But let's start off, first of all, with the fact that I suspect this is a conversation you might find yourself in with somebody about the issue of now you had first the Senate a number of times pass various pieces of legislation that were sent to the House which would prevent individuals, so-called trans athletes, from actually, uh, that would be a boy who now is called a trans girl, competing against other girls, or vice versa. And so now that that has not only passed the Senate, it passed the House, then there was an amendment, so they went back to the Senate and out of the House. It looks like it will probably be enacted. And one of the questions that uh, we would certainly want to ask is in this breakpoint commentary by John Stone Street, what would you say about men competing as women? And I think you can look at this certainly theologically, because we recognize that uh, certainly we have the scriptures, and I've done this before in the class, so let me just refeel, kind of repeat some of this, that in Genesis 1, God created what? Male and female, Adam and Eve. If you say, well, that's just an Old Testament verse, we'll then turn to Matthew 19, where then Jesus is asked about the issue of divorce. And he says, have you not read, just as God created, basically, male and female, Adam and Eve? So you have both in the Old Testament in Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, and then in the New Testament, a little bit in Matthew 5, but certainly in Matthew 19 of Jesus, and then other statements as well to actually look at that theologically. But can we look at this in a couple of other ways that would be important? And the first is we've got to recognize that as soon as this is become law, there is probably going to be some judge that will strike it down. This is a picture of the governor of Idaho uh, after the legislature had a law banning trans athletes, and he signed it, then the American Civil Liberties Union. Why is it always the ACLU? But anyway, the American Civil Liberties Union challenged it, and uh, there was an injunction against this. I don't know which judge, but I'm guessing probably Judge Pittman in um, Austin probably going to strike it down, but we'll see where it goes. But that is, of course, the question that we have. Does it seem fair that an individual, a boy, who says, look, I have a real conviction that I'm a girl, so I'm now going to compete as a girl against other female athletes. And there's the question, of course, of fairness that people have been raising as well. And John Stone Street, in his commentaries, I'm giving you some of his so you can find not only what we have, and at the end we're going to talk about some of our interviews on point of view that you can find, uh, really says that protecting females in sports may require for us to tell the truth. And what's the truth? There is a competitive disadvantage that you would actually find with a boy with testosterone now taking maybe hormonal treatments, maybe even gender reassignment surgery competing against another girl. And I think we have a pretty good understanding of that. But some of you might say, well, what's the harm if we let boys and girls play tennis against each other or run track? Well, first of all, it eliminates all the records. I used to live in Connecticut when I went to graduate school, and it is now true that virtually every female track record in Connecticut has been removed by these two boys that call themselves girls, trans girls. Uh, they have now eliminated all those. And so the fairness to those girls, also the financial implications of not being able to get a scholarship is very significant. But some of you might say, well, if they're not actually hurting each other, that's one thing. 
Well, yes, but that's uh, back to this issue, because the reason that John Stone wrote this is that now, in some places, males who now consider themselves females are playing rugby. Now, that is a contact sport. And when you start thinking about things like rugby, most women don't play football, although we did have one that was a kicker for Vanderbilt, or that they play, or now we have some that are in MMA, mixed martial arts, you can see this, if nothing else, the potential danger of all of that. So those are some thoughts that you can have. And, of course, there are lots of people that have written about that. So I thought, in the interest of time, I would talk about something else that has surfaced. And this comes from an interview that I did. And, by the way, as I go through these, if you find yourself saying, I'd like to read the book or I'd like to just listen to the interview, they're available on our website pointofview.net. But we had Abigail Schreier on a while back in which she wrote this book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Because what she has noticed is what she calls transgender contagion. More and more girls who have never experienced any kind of gender discomfort who now are rushing to have what is essentially irreversible treatments. This would be gender reassignment surgery or hormonal treatment. Now, again, it is striking, as I've shared in this class before, that Dr. Paul McHugh, who was at Johns Hopkins University Medical School, nevertheless, who was proposing many of the gender reassignment, we used to call it sex change surgery, now it's called gender reassignment surgery, for these individuals that had some kind of gender confusion. And after publishing hundreds of articles and having been a professor at the medical school, finally changed his mind. And actually now has come out saying that this does not solve the psychological issues. And we're starting to see more and more of this because, as she points out in the book, there is a phrase that is used in the medical community today called gender dysphoria. It used to be called gender identity disorder, but because of lobbying, they are no longer calling it a disorder. But it's characterized by a severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. Now, if you go and look at the literature, and I've looked at some of it, and she's looked at a lot of it, and a lot of it's documented in the book, typically this begins usually in early childhood, and it affects just a very small number of the population, mostly boys. As she points out, prior to 2012, you could find no scientific literature at all about girls in their adolescent years ever having developed gender dysphoria at all. And yet, now we've seen this sudden surge of adolescents, girls, sometimes boys, but certainly girls, having gender dysphoria and self-identifying as transgender. Don't take her word for it. Take the word of an individual that started this study back in 2016. Lisa, Dr. Lisa Littman is an OB-GYN and a public health researcher, an individual that would not agree theologically or politically with almost anybody in the room but nevertheless started noticing something that was causing her to eventually study that, in which she, first of all, about 2016, saw that all sorts of girls in this one small town in Rhode Island all came out as transgender. She even says, when I saw the first one come out, I said, well, that's good. I'm glad she could come out of the closet and uh, document this. And then number two, she says, huh. by the time it was about a half a dozen, she said, statistically, makes no sense at all. And so she began to do uh, very rigorous scientific research published in peer 
peer-reviewed journals, and she did an interview, for example, of 256 parents whose kids did not meet the criteria, and there's about two pages of criteria you can read if you'd like, on what gender dysphoria looks like, but then suddenly identified as transgender. Well, then she has all sorts of conclusions. In the interest of time, I just picked out three out of almost two pages of material. The one is that they found that the vast majority of these girls, primarily girls, had zero indicators of any childhood gender dysphoria. Number two, a majority had one or more psychiatric diagnoses. Uh, Matter of fact, almost half of them were engaged in self-harm. That would be like cutting or something like that. And over 60% said the announcement brought, according to their parents, a boost in popularity and what? social media. So that's why she's begun to thinking that a lot of it has to do with a social contagion. It uh, goes on to, interesting enough, most of the parents she interviewed would be those that would accept uh, what we'd call the homosexual agenda. Most of the parents believed in same-sex marriage. But when they raised questions of their daughters as to, are you sure you want to get surgery, uh, the, immediately their parents were all labeled as transphobic. Um, and, of course, you may have seen that, uh, for example, Uh, The author of the Harry Potter series um, has been called transphobic, even though she's a liberal and a feminist. Um, And there are many others that are very liberal that have been called transphobic because, as I point out before, you can never be liberal enough, but you can sometimes not be liberal enough. And so you even see that taking place. In the interest of time, let me recommend a book that I think is one of the best, and that's Dr. Ryan Anderson. I had one of the students say, is he related to you? No, no, no relation. But uh, he has put together this 250-page book, has over 30 pages of endnotes, When Harry Became Sally. And it is responding to what's called the transgender moment. And in this, he actually quotes from a professor at Princeton that I think, think very highly of that says, you know, some of this actually goes against biblical ideas and is really very similar to the Gnosticism Paul was talking about. Because the Gnostics and even Eastern religion would say, you know, the only part of me that's real is my soul. And um, so my soul's in this body, but, you know, especially if you believe in reincarnation, which shows up, as we'll talk about, in Lee Strobel's book. What about reincarnation some of that? This idea that my soul moves from one body to another. So there's really nothing. My, so this idea of dualism, of I, I have this who I am, but I'm actually in the wrong gender. You know, I'm a boy in a girl's body. By the way, I think there's going to be a real coming out soon of people that are talking about transgender that buy into reincarnation. The reason I am a girl in a boy's body and I should be in a girl's body is because in a previous life I was a girl in a girl's body. So you can see where this takes it. But it implies that the person is not the body. It actually is just something you inhabit. In the new heaven, new earth, we're going to have new heavens, new earth, we're going to have what? A new body. So you can think about, in some respects, that's being um, emphasizing really Gnosticism, which obviously is not biblical. What about the teaching in the schools? Well, we have things like the gender-bred person, so that you can understand what it means to be metrosexual. If you go to some of these schools right now where this is being taught, maybe you've seen some of the controversy even this week um, in Virginia, uh, in Loudoun County. This is the kind of things we give to grade school kids, telling them that you can have a gender identity, 
which could be different than your gender expression, which could be different than your biological sex. And on the bottom, you know, you could be sexually attracted to this person, but romantically, romantically attracted to someone else. Do you want this taught in the schools? Here's another one. Here's the gender unicorn, which is used a little bit later. And this is the idea of gender identity and gender expression and being physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to. And so you can see why some of these school boards, maybe not here in Texas, but certainly in other parts of the country, why it's become very controversial. Because this is all under the auspices of trying to make transgender uh, children or gender dysphoric children feel good. But I talk about the confusion that we will be passing on and all the rest. And this is a big issue in college right now. Um, Julie Marie Blake, who is with the Alliance Defending Freedom, says, Imagine dropping your daughter off to a Christian college and then learn that her roommate is male. And this has to do with the fact that she and the Alliance Defending Freedom lawyers are actually bringing suit against the federal government uh, on the basis of Missouri's College of the Ozarks because the Biden administration this year has implemented from one of those executive orders, member President Biden signing very early in January, added sexual orientation and gender identity to the Fair Housing Act. Well, the Fair Housing Act, I know something about that because my father actually worked on some of that, and it was an act to actually implement this so that an individual renting an apartment or a house could not deny a person on the basis of whether they're black, Hispanic, uh, whatever it might be. But that was very clearly understood to actually address what we would consider to be immutable characteristics back in the 1970s. But now once you add sexual orientation and gender identity, that means that then even a Christian college like College of the Ozarks would be required to admit a student that sees himself or herself, depending on the switch, as transgender. And so that's why the suit has now gone to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. I predict whatever comes down the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals will go to the Supreme Court. So you can see that this is an issue we're going to have to think about a little bit. And again, I want us to have not only our biblical convictions, but our biblical compassion. There are some people that are confused. By the way, when you were in middle school, were you ever confused? Yeah, some of us probably were a little bit confused, maybe not sexually confused, but confused about our family or our identity or something. Middle stands for mixed up, right? You know, we understood that. And so we recognize. But again, Dr. Paul McHugh has said that sometimes when you have gender confusion during the middle school years, what happens? He says anywhere from 80 to 90 percent, looking at which study, that gender confusion gets sorted out by the end of adolescence. But to allow individuals to have gender reassignment surgery and all sorts of hormonal treatment, which is then irreversible, leads to what we're now seeing more and more of, and that is transgender regret. In fact, there was a professor at the university uh, in um, the UK, in Britain, who was actually collecting these stories. And they removed his tenure and removed his funding because he did that. But if you say, well, is there any documentation for that? Certainly there is. First of all, Albert Schreier's book talks about this, con- uh, this whole idea of confusion. Um, Ryan Anderson goes into a whole chapter on all the examples, the very public examples of transgender regret, but also what about some of these teachings in the school and all sorts of scientific verified research. 
and then Andrew Walker. Uh, all three of these individuals have been on the program, so if you want to go to our website and listen to the interviews, you can. Andrew Walker, if I remember right, I think he was actually encouraged to write this book, God in the Transgender Debate, by homosexuals. And I said, why did they do that? He said, well, because they said, when you wrote the book about God and homosexuality, you, of all the Christians, were the most fair to our position, but certainly helped us understand how to think about what you were actually calling for. So he deals with that, and they deal with the issue of intersex and all sorts of other things and all sorts of issues. But the good news is, if this is something that you would like to know more about, these are some good books. Some of you have said, I don't want to think about this one more minute. But I've got enough to at least, if a conversation ever comes up, I've got something to talk about. And as Parker and I like to say, there is no topic off the table here in the examine class. There's no topic off the table on point of view. And so if you have any interest in this at all, you can read one of these books. They're all readily available. Irreversible damage is hard to get in. Target, because they banned it from the Target stores, which shows you a little bit about. And I think some of these are a little harder to get on Amazon, but not completely. I, I think Ryan Anderson's, I think both these books, uh, Andrew Walker hasn't gotten into the kind of controversy the first two, but I think you can still get them on Amazon. So it just illustrates again that even trying to speak the truth, you're going to get some pushback. And so I wanted to give you some things to think about, because over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be hearing all sorts of comments about trans athletes. And you might say, what do I need to say about this? How do I think about this? Giving you a little bit to begin to do some research on. But let's, if we can, turn it back over to Parker. And thank you for paying attention.